This is the Hunt, Fish, and Serve podcast, hosted by Ethan Evans and Tyler Swenson. Today we are joined by Luke Stutzman, who was previously on the podcast, episode 15, to talk about his elk hunt this past season. Now he's on the show to recap his bow hunt in Arizona, where he was hunting mule deer and coos deer. Setting the stage, where'd you go, what you were hunting for, you know, what type of weapon you're using, and so on. So it was... Um back we we drove down end of december i think we left my own uh 27th through 28th drove down to uh arizona which is a heck of a journey in itself with a truck and trailer and side by side um get down there and it's a over-the-counter coos deer slash uh mule deer hunt it's buck only archery only so Okay. Going into it, it was it was my third year down there, second year hunting. First year I went down, I was just there, um, just kind of taking in the whole experience. And uh, yeah. So you weren't hunting the first year? No, not the first year. I was, okay. I was there as a spotter and kind of a shot caller. Kind of I mean, coordinating stocks and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's got to be fun in itself. I mean, there's a lot of hunts I'd definitely go on where... I wouldn't care if I was hunting or not, you know, just the experience of being there, being a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost more fun. Um, I, I won't say it is more fun, but it's really close because th- there's no pressure on you. Yeah, you know, I was just going to say that. You're out there it, it, just experiencing everything. So learning, you learn a ton when you're that guy calling shots and coordinating stocks. So. So like, um, I know you said, so when you go down there, there's, this has kind of got to become like more of a popular hunt, I'd say in most recent years. And it's kind of one of those hunts cause it's on the tail end of the year. Usually everybody kind of wrapped up their, uh, you know, usual out of state hunt maybe, or what they hunt in state. So, and even like cow hunts are kind of wrapping up at this point. So a lot of people kind of end up going down there and it's a January, what's it like mid December to early January is usually when it is. So. That's when they're rutting, right? Yeah. The unit that we're hunting is kind of the last couple of days of December. Um, is So it, it's a little interesting because when you buy a tag in Arizona, it's good for 12 months. So, you know, the tag that I bought last year, I could hunt like the last three days of December on. And then as soon as January 1st hit, then I had to have another tag for this year. So, yeah, they're in rut so it's the first two weeks of january it's kind of hit or miss depending on the year whether they're in full swing or just kind of getting started so is that the is javelina is that still open at that time or is it only yeah yeah it's open at that time you just gotta have obviously your hunting license and a tag so yeah so yeah so i think you know that's kind of like became a popular hunt with the over the counter and maybe with like covid and hunting getting more and more popular do you like the fact that it's over the counter and you can go every year or is that kind of like, you know, cause you can kind of talk about the pressure and things you saw, but from what I talked to you about before, it kind of seemed like it kind of almost ruined the experience in some ways. So, yeah. So like you said, you know, it's an over the counter hunt. Um, this year, the majority of the States down there that have this hunt available, um, it, I mean a record number of tags sold. There was a portion of Arizona that they could not print the tags fast enough 
and like deliver them to places, uh, you know, as they were selling. So there's definitely units that are getting overrun with that pressure. Um, Our specific unit, it was, we, we had pressure. It wasn't crazy. It was maybe a little bit more than last year. But um, nothing, nothing absurd. Um, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that it necessarily ruined the hunt for me. Um, it was frustrating at times. You know, you get to an area that you hunted in last year and you had maybe not success in, but you were seeing a lot of deer. You're seeing good sized deer. You, you, you know, you show up there and there's, you know, three or four tents set up. And you're like, all right, well, we don't want to be stepping on these guys' toes. So we'll just go go and find somewhere else. Even if that's where the deer are, that's just kind of the way that our group handles it. So, yeah, I know it's like one of those things. It's like, I guess I could see, you know, it, it sucks when it's like those over the counter because it does give a lot of opportunity. But at the same time, I mean, like in some ways it maybe be good if you did like it was a point or two, you know, and you know, you could maybe like kind of lower that pressure because I mean, at the end of the day, I, you know, everybody kind of wants to have a better experience. And like you said, you didn't feel that pressure as much, but I hear it from all the time, you know, everybody's like, Arizona's getting ruined as a state and like everybody should stop talking about it. You know, it's like not even worth the money to go down there and hunt and buy a tag anymore. So, and maybe those are people just trying to scare everybody away, but. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting that the dynamic that they have right now. Um, I think this is just my thought, my opinion here. I think in the next two to three years, it's going to go to, a quota so um you know everybody everybody can go down there everybody can buy a tag um they do a rifle season and then you know a couple of weeks later they do archery season obviously there's a lot more deer that get shot during archery se- or uh, rifle season sorry and then so it, if they do do a quota then it would need to be separate quotas between rifle and archery because you know just throw a number out there, obviously low ball on it, but say in this unit, you can shoot 10 bucks. They're going to be 10 bucks shot. So, um, rifle season, say there's nine bucks to get shot. Okay. Well now I drive down there 18 hours. I spend all this money on a tag and in the first day, bam, you know, somebody shoots a deer and we're all done. We pack up and go home. So it would, it would have to kind of be separate. Um, and there is still that chance with, the archery season, you know, the first three days, the quota could be full and that's just the way it is. Um, but I think, I, I don't know, honestly, which system I would prefer, whether it's a quota or it's a point or two. You know, there's another thing I was, I was going to bring up too about that. Have you ever been part of the Idaho, like getting a tag through Idaho at all? No, no, but I've heard about it. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah so, it was interesting. Yeah. So we got our Idaho mule deer tag that way. And you know, that's something. I've talked about it on a previous podcast, but that's something that I could see maybe Arizona where it's like, you know, so basically like you're in the system before you can get a tag and you can like wait in the lobby for like an hour. And it doesn't matter if you're first guy or the last guy, you're automatically assigned a number and then they just cap the units at so many tags sold. So maybe that's another way they could do it too. So, you know, maybe unit one only has 50 tags they sell because it's like, maybe they manage that more as a trophy unit and it's something yeah. that'd be totally different because you're not, cause they kind of do that for every hunt basically, except for some limited entry tags, but that'd be another interesting system to think about for Arizona. Mm-hmm. 
So would you split that? I mean, you know, you give so many rifle tags and so many archery tags or just I don't know if you could, I don't know how you would actually do that. Cause I mean, it seems like, you know, the big issue is just the late season archery, but you know, you can't isolate that system. I would say to how you kind of handle everything else. So I don't know. It'd be an interesting thing. And I suppose Arizona has got to kind of talk about that because I mean, sooner or later, maybe it won't happen, but it's like, if nobody's really having success, maybe they won't get as many people and then license sales go down and then you kind of got to reevaluate then. So, but it seems like somebody's always wanting to go down there no matter what. So. Yeah. And in my mind, that's why it is an over the counter tag, you know, it's, it's during the rut. So there's a lot of activity. Um, you're seeing deer every day, but it's archery only. So you, it, it's tough. I mean, the success rate is like 9% and we've been down there three years and I don't think any of us have ever gotten a deer. So wow. there's three or four hunters down there in our group every year. And yeah, it's been three years with, with no success so far. Yeah. I mean, as best as you can, can you kind of like paint the picture in like somebody's head who's never really been to like Arizona and hunted deer down there? Like, what is it kind of like, and especially like, you know, bow hunting them, which is completely different than rifle hunting them. So. Yeah. So, I mean, the little bit of bow hunting that I did in the Midwest, you know, you're sitting in a tree stand. Um, the archery elk hunting that I've done in Wyoming, you are either, you're sitting up on a knob, you're glassing or you're calling trying to get them to come to you. A lot of guys in Wyoming still hunt. So, you know, you're moving five, 10 yards glassing, move five, 10 yards and you're glassing. Um, so down there, I mean, there's a lot of like ATV. Um, you can drive your truck on these roads, but you, you want an ATV. Yeah. <laughs> you're driving. And I guess the unit that we're in, you're driving like right along the foothill of the mountain. And, you know, a lot of people think Arizona and they're like, oh, Phoenix is in Arizona. Okay. Well, in this area, there's mountains with 10,000 foot peaks. Like they're huge. So, you you know, you're driving on the foothills. Um, you kind of got certain pockets that looks like, hey, there's going to be deer here. So you stop there early morning, you start glassing. You don't see anything right off the rip. You drive down the road a little farther to your next pocket, glass that. And this is just kind of how we do it. Obviously, there's guys that will sit in one spot all day. And also in there, there's the factor of whether or not you're hunting coos deer, if you're hunting mule deer versus coos deer. So coos deer guys will sit in one spot all day long and look through the spotting scope. Where mule deer guys, at least in our group, we move around quite a bit. Um, so yeah, I mean, you kind of, the, the terrain obviously is completely different than Wyoming, it's, it's not necessarily um, more flat. I mean, there's parts of the area that are very flat and you're moving between small pieces of you know, cedar or sagebrush trying to get close. Um, in the mountain, you're using valleys, you're using every little bush, every little rock that you can to stay unseen. Um, and a lot of the stuff that do spot and stock. So you, you know, say you come to a pocket and you pass up a deer. Okay. Well, we got three or four guys in our group. One of them is going to stay back. They're going to be the spotter. They're going to kind of coordinate everybody's movement and everybody else has a game plan. They're going to go in there and we're going to attack this deer from three different angles. And for us, it has seemed like 
every freaking time we got three different angles, they go out the other one. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's, you know, you can, you can try, you can coordinate a perfect stock and you can just have one little thing go wrong and there they go. Then you're on to the next spot. So. Oh, so how many opportunities do you say you get to spot and stock, like spot and stock a deer when you're there? Is it limited or are you trying to get one a day or what's kind of like a good range on that for you? So realistically, I think, I think you do get one a day, um, but most days, um, obviously there's going to be those off days that you just don't see them, whether they're there or not, you just don't see them. Um, but yeah, you know, whether it's the morning hunt or the evening hunt, it seems like almost, almost every day you get an opportunity to at least try get closer, you know? Uh, one of the things I was going to ask you about with that spot and stock is like, you know, the kind of gear, like, are you taking your boots off? I've seen a lot of people do that, um, like on videos and stuff, or do you wear like those kind of booties that they wear and stuff or anything or. So I haven't before, but I, I won't go down there again without, them. um, they're so necessary. Those deer are so much on edge. It's, it, it's pretty crazy to me to notice the differences between the deer and the desert and the deer in Wyoming. Um, so yeah, I mean, as far as gear goes, next year I will definitely be more prepared there. Being whether it's quiet or whether it's, I don't, I personally don't believe a ton in scent blockage. Right. Um, yeah. I I think you can, you know, you have your your sight, your sound, and your scent. That's what you're trying to avoid and keep concealed when you're making a spot and stock. And I think there's two of those things that you can chance, which is your sight and your sound. And the one thing you absolutely cannot chance that will bust a stock every single time is your scent. Yeah. So, um, you know, even if I do throw on a bunch of scent blocker, to me, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to go and make my stock in a way that they're not going to smoke. Yeah. And I I think one thing that was, it kind of blew my mind was like, when you say you're like stocking, it's like, what's the duration of like a typical stock? Because it's, it's longer than what I think most people expect. I would put a typical stock between two and six hours. Damn. <laughs> wow. I mean, it's, it, it could be brutal. You know, you can, you can spot a deer early in the morning and you're like, okay, we'll go after this one. Say it doesn't work out. We'll go get lunch and then be back out here in the afternoon. Yep. And, you start making your move. They say they spot you early and you got to start moving one step every two, three minutes. And then, you know, it's two o'clock in the afternoon and you're like, it doesn't work out. And you're like, shit, I just wasted an entire morning. Not necessarily wasted, but there yeah. went an entire morning. Um, no point in going back to get lunch and just stay out here to the evening. <laughs> right. When you say like they're skittish, I suppose they're not very susceptible to you know, maybe like some of the Midwestern techniques that they use for like grunt calls or rattling antlers or anything like that. Or have you ever tried any of that down there or no? We've, we've tried a little bit with, uh, with rattling. Um, and maybe we need to do more of it. Obviously we've been down there three years with no success. So maybe we need to change something <laughs> up. Yep. Um, but, uh, I, from, from what we've, we've noticed with the rattling and stuff, they're just not, 
super susceptible because, and I think it's because that terrain is so open. Yeah. For you to be in a spot where you're unseen and close, you might as well just try to inch a little closer. Yeah. Instead of trying to get them to you, you know. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, you're at your machine, you spot a deer, and you're going to go make a stock, you're going to drop your pack, you're going to drop everything. You really just want you and your bow. Mm-hmm. Um, a rangefinder, binoculars, that kind of thing. Um, so just carrying that extra stuff, more possibility to make noise, that kind of thing. Yeah. No, uh, I totally, I totally get that. How about like, uh, de- uh, does anybody ever like carry a decoy around? Have you ever thought about doing that? I mean, I've seen guys, you know, they put them on the bows or they have those, like, I think they're like called Montana decoys or whatever. And they're folding up and stuff. I don't know if they'd ever be susceptible to anything like that either, but. I've, I've never seen any of it. We've never tried it. Yeah. Um, we've done it a, a little bit with elk in Wyoming, but, um, no, not down there. Not down there. Yeah. Yeah. So like, is there, is, I got another question and this is kind of off topic, but is there any antler restriction on that or is it just, you see, uh, you see something poking out, you're, you're good to go or what? You get the green light. <laughs> oh, I, for me and for a lot of the people down there, you know, your first three days, you're like, I'm going to shoot a freaking monster. Okay. Yep. We came down here to shoot big deer. And then it's the fifth and the sixth and the seventh day. And you're like, I should a decent buck. <laughs> and then yeah. it's the last two days of the hunt. And you're like, I'm fucking shooting anything with antlers. <laughs> yeah. So, um, they have to have two points okay. on, on one side. So, oh, okay. um, yeah, I struggle in that, in that part because, you know, I go down there and I want to shoot a mature deer. I don't, by the seventh, eighth day, I don't care how big it is, but I want it to be mature. Yeah. You know? yeah. So, I mean, last year I had just a little dink walk out in front of me at 40, 50 yards. And I was like, I'm not going to shoot this thing. You know, he's got, he's got some years to grow. Yeah. So, um, there, there is that antler restriction. Our group sticks, um, obviously sticks to that is the law. Right. And then we, you know, everybody's on that maturity level looking for that. That would have been the group's biggest buck though. Yeah, you're not wrong. <laughs> you are not you had to wrong. Set that bar somewhere. <laughs> yeah, very true. You know, like this is like very big terrain. I think everybody always thinks like, "Oh man, like deer should be like really easy to see." Is it like when you're glassing them? Is it pretty tough to find them sometimes and where they're at? It it is very hard. Whoever says it's easy is dead wrong. I mean, you think, oh, it's open terrain. There's big hills. You should be able to see them. They should stick out like a sore thumb. And that is completely wrong, especially with coos deer. I mean, those coos deer will stand still in one spot for 10 minutes. And you can be looking in that spot for 10 minutes and won't see them until they move an ear or turn around or do something like that. Um, The mule deer are a little bit easier. But still, I mean, it's tough. It takes your eyes a day or two to even just get adjusted and realize what a deer looks like in that terrain. That's what I've always heard is like people normally just see like the flick of an ear or something. And, you know, it's not just, oh, there's a deer standing there, but they see a little flick and then they, you know, you further investigate and yeah, there is a deer standing there. Yeah. And like you said, getting adjusted to the terrain. I mean, we, I found that out a lot in Colorado. It's just like, once you see it once, you know, I feel like you're always going to remember what a deer looks like in that terrain, if that makes any sense. 
I was going to say, yeah, like you got to kind of see it to believe it in some ways. Like there's yeah. something there. Yeah. I mean, we spent upwards of, I'll throw a number out there, six hours looking through rip glass every day. And by the time I lay down in bed at night and I close my eyes, I'm still seeing deer. Sagebrush. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Something else I want to talk to you about. So are you, what kind of binoculars are you sitting through binoculars all day? Like the big, like 18s or some of the science scope or what's kind of like your technique for glass and that kind of big open terrain. Yeah. Um, so that technique changed a little bit this year. I use my Vortex 10 by 42s. Um, I got them set up on just a little tripod so I can, whether I'm sitting in the machine, I can set the tripod on the seat and that just gives you that little bit of extra stability that you need. Yep. Um, a lot of the times, you know, everybody will kind of sit like that and see something that maybe a deer or we see a deer. Okay. And then we get the big spotting scope out, um, with the standing tripods and that kind of thing. Yep. Um, this year, uh, my dad and another guy we went down with both had the 18 hour binoculars Mm -hmm. and it will definitely be something I purchased before I go down next year. I mean, you know, you got your, your 10 by 42s, your 11 by 45s, you can spot deer, um, but you can also spot a lot of things that look like deer. And when you have those 15 to 18 power binoculars, um, there, there's, it just eliminates all question. Yep. You may still need to get the spotter out to see how big a deer is, but you know, it, there's no like, oh, that looks like a deer. And then you pull the spotting scope out and it's a, a stick that looks like a deer. There's none of that. So that is definitely the way to go in my opinion. That's always piqued my curiosity is like, you know, how much of a difference does it make? Mm -hmm. Because you or Ethan recently bought some higher power binoculars and I don't know if you've got to experiment them yet, experiment with them yet, but. Yeah, I haven't really yet. And it'd be really interesting to take out. It's like the only thing that's like a drawback of those is they're kind of bulky and awkward to carry if you're kind of hiking in far. But like what you said, Luke, like if you guys using side by side to hop from hunt spot to hunt spot. Like they're kind of just a huge addition and can be great for kind of that truck side by side hunting. So, yeah. But you know, people are like, well, you could say the same about a spotting scope too. Cause those are kind of big and awkward. So, you know, some people kind of, you know, go with the smaller binoculars and a bigger pair of binoculars. Cause they're like, well, I can sit in glass all day with an 18, but I can't sit in glass with one eye open and one eye closed and try to set the spotting scope. Cause it's just, it just the eye strain and, your focus level is not there. So. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, you really got to judge it on how much time you're going to spend looking through glass. I mean, especially if you're down there and you're a coosier hunter, you can go and you can drop six grand on the, you know, the dual eyepiece. Yeah. Yeah. Scopes. But that's a lot of freaking money. Yeah, it is. And you, you better really be using them if that's the case. Yeah. Where, you know, you can pick up a decent pair of 15s or 18s for thousand, twelve hundred bucks. So, yeah. um, that absolutely is worth it, in my opinion, especially in that area. So, do you think that'll be something like you'll keep your uh, smaller magnification binoculars in your uh, bino harness and then have the added 18s, you know, just to keep in the ranger or whatnot and glass from there? I've I thought about that quite a bit because I love having, you know, especially like when you're on a stock, you've got you gotta have that lower power binocular. 
So I think that is what it would be for me that I would keep my 10 by 42s and my vinyl harness and then keep the, the bigger ones on a bigger tripod. Yep. Um, but then I, I, I don't know. It just kind of depends on the situation, but I think the majority of the time that's where I'd be. I mean, we kind of go back to our Colorado hunts. Like Tyler had a cheaper tripod and I had like a more expensive one. It's like, it was kind of a big difference just for like comfortability wise, being able to have that better tripod and people are like, well, it's just a tripod. And like, I kind of thought that for the longest time. And I think Tyler's kind of there with me. Yeah, I am now. It's like where you can adjust that leg to be like multiple different angles, you know, from the 45 to whatever, 60, 90, whatever, like whatever it's gotta be, whatever it's gotta be. Like I was sitting way more comfortable and Ty was like, this is just not comfortable. Like it's not cutting for me for you. So I think definitely that's one thing that I'd recommend to a lot of people and just getting a higher end tripod and especially something that's like interchangeable with uh different uh plates and quick adapters, especially if you're going back, like you said, Luke, like, you know, if you need to use your big power by binos and then you want to go from your 18s to your spying scope to check it out, like yeah, you don't want to mess around and monkey around with like put another plate on and stuff like that. So no, having a good tripod, I think would definitely be a good gear purchase for about anybody. But it's definitely not one of the funnest purchases to buy. No. 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 Now you're like, there's this one that's $300 or there's this one that's like 65 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What sounds more reasonable? That's kind of what I thought. But like Ethan said, you know, when we were out there, he'd just hand me his and he'd be like, just try it out for a while. And oh my God, did it make a big difference? Yeah. Just being comfortable glassing, I guess. And uh, Luke, you guys have some like lower end binos. Um, do you ever get any eye strain from like looking through them all day or no? Because I know that's what some people say. It's like, you know, you have the lower end and then you go to like the Swaros or the Zeiss or the Leicas and you don't get that eye strain. And I don't know. I've never actually, I mean, I've looked through, we looked through glass quite a bit in Colorado, but I didn't personally ever get that kind of feeling, but maybe it's different for people, but. It, yeah, I think that might be just person to person because i I've never had any issues with it, you know, when I've been down there three years, the spotting scope, the one eyepiece, definitely. Yeah. Um, yep. You looking through that for an hour, trying to coordinate a stock and you pull your head away and one eye sees one way and the other eye is really blurry. It really throws you off there. Um, so the eye strain is definitely, definitely a big deal with the spotting scope, which again is why those 18s are so handy. But yep. now my 10 by 42s are, I, I do just fine with them. I can pick up to you pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe just like one of those things, like just have an experience and mm-hmm. practice and the skill set to do it. And kind of like you said, we said before, like finding one with whatever glass you set up, you got now and kind of having confidence in it that way. Kind of like, kind of like, kind of like shed hunting or hunting for yep. mushrooms. Like you kind of just got to find one. Cause like, <laughs> I mean, I was under the depression. I was like, well, what do you look for? And I'd ask Tyler, like when we go mushroom hunting, he'd be like, I don't know. You, you kind of look for this and that. And it's like, well, I don't really know. And like we found found one and stumbled upon one. It's like, oh, that kind of makes a little more sense. And I, always, I always told you once you see one, you'll never forget it. Yeah. For the season, at least. Yeah. So, yeah, hundred percent. And, you know, that could play um, a part of hunting as well and glassing, but. No, it's fun to hear from a third perspective. You know, we always preach on this podcast, you know, that it doesn't take a bunch, a buttload of money, you know, like people think to do these kind of things. And, you know, it's fun to hear from you, Luke, that you use a magnification of 10 by 
it's fun to hear that you get by with that, you know, and it is possible to get by with that. Cause I feel like some, some videos you watch, they're like, Oh, you got to have this. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I've never, I mean, the first year down there, because all I was doing was spotting deer, I, I feel like I got pretty damn good at it. Yep. Um, it would pull up to a spot. I'd look through my binoculars for two minutes and I'd find two, three deer. And, this year when my focus is more on, okay, where's my bow? Is my bow ready? Um, say there is something close. Am I going to be ready to go and get it? I was not quite as proficient at it, but still, I didn't didn't have a ton of issue with the 10 by 42s So like, I don't know about Arizona in general, but maybe more your unit or other units around there. Is there, is it a lot of like mule deer, coos deer? Is it 50-50 down there or is it more mule deer, coos deer or? Or like, do you have a preference for like what you kind of want to shoot or is it like any deer? Or? Yeah. So we've always kind of put our focus on the mule deer, mm-hmm. you know, you get that classic, big, wide, heavy desert mule deer. That's kind of what we've always had our sights set on. Um, in our unit specifically, it depends on where you look. So the coos deer live up in the very high elevations. And then the mule deer spend a lot of their time in the foothills and the flats. They move back and forth. So the mule deer, you know, they come to water at like the ranch water troughs or an old reservoir that was built. Whereas the coos deer are up high and there's springs and they don't have any reason to come down because there's plenty of feed up there and plenty of water. Um, so we, yeah, like I said, we put a lot of our focus on mule deer. This year, my interest was kind of peaked in the coos deer because we we were looking for mule deer and glassed up a coos that was at a lower elevation. And I was like, yeah, I'll go after that. Heck yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know how sweet it would be to kill a coos deer with my bow? Yeah, that would be sweet. So, I, I mean, that that in my mind is like, you can do that, you're the man. Yeah. Like, that is one of the hardest, hardest spot stock hunts. So I was like, absolutely, you know, I'll make an attempt. Um, and it was like a two and a half mile hike uphill to get to this thing. I get up there and it was nowhere to be found. I mean, just disappeared off the face of the earth. And they're, they're pretty small, you know, a grown buck is 90 pounds. And so, yeah. It, it definitely piqued my interest and because of the challenge that's involved, but I can say that. And then again, reiterate that I've been there for three years and obviously mule deer are a challenge enough. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So one thing I have a question about, and you know, I know all deer are deer, but like, and is their rut behavior like pretty similar to what you see in a lot of other places as far as like Arizona goes, are they on their feet all day and they're pretty active and running around or is that kind of how Arizona is or. I, I would say, yeah, when they're in that full swing rut, which we've only had one year. Um, otherwise the other two years we were a little bit early. So, um, you know, you'll be at a spot, you'll last one up in the morning and they'll be pushing does here and there. There'll be the littler bucks on the outer edges and then they'll go in bed. Like then the coos deer are pretty much the same way. They'll be they're 
they're a lot quicker with their movements. Okay. I don't know if just if it's just because of the terrain that they live in that air in that area. They they move more like sheep or goats up in the rocks. Um, but yeah, that the, them too. They uh, walk around, move around, push and doze till nine ten o'clock, and then they they kind of bed down hmm. and then get going again in the evening. So okay. Yeah, it's got to be definitely something cool to see and experience in that kind of fashion, especially like a big open. No, that's definitely yeah. definitely cool to hear and makes me want to go down there one day for sure. Definitely. It's a pretty amazing opportunity. You can you can have a day or three days where you have two stocks each day and every single one of them just gets blown up by something, you know. Whether it's another animal, the wind swirls and it's tough. I mean, we this year was the longest I was down there. And we ran into some weather some days that kind of halted our hunt. But uh, it's it's pretty grueling to be down there for eight, nine days doing the same thing every day, mm-hmm. seeing deer and just getting frustrated every time the stock gets blown up. Do you ever feel uh, just worn out and you're like you're ready to be back home while you're on those trips? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 100%. That sixth, seventh day rolls around and you're like, all right, we'll wake up at 5.30 again and go and blow up a stock yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's not gonna work out today maybe tomorrow yeah yeah it's tough but um just the the experience seeing the deer watching the deer move getting in close to them um you, you kind of penny, forget right? yeah you forget about that thought that you had yeah i know and to maybe maybe get more into like your bow set up a little bit kind of change the topic um, are you changing up your bow setup at all from when you go from your elk hunt to your mule deer hunt? Like, are you changing your arrows, your broadheads or anything tuning wise, as far as that goes? No, I run it. I run it the exact same. I got the, that Matthews VXR with the, uh, spot hog fast Eddie XL site. Um, so that just has the, the dial on there and I have the two pin one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you can be set at 30 in your second at 50 or something like that. I think that gives you enough variation um, to say you range a deer at 50 and then he comes running straight at you and you're like, okay, he's going to be around 30 right now. You can just use your other pin. There's no adjustments there. Um, I think that the behavior, especially because my, my main purpose with that bow in Wyoming is the rut hunt in September of elk. And they behave very similar. So you can have it, it's so it's so hard to predict their movements that I think that the two pin I really enjoy, but I've never been a person that shot like a five pin or a seven pin. Yeah. So I think for me it takes up too much of the sight picture. Yeah, so I'd agree with you. Yeah, and I know that's definitely just personal preference, but that spot oxide that those pins are vertical, right? Are they those horizontal? ones? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, they're vertical on. It, it's yeah. It's one you know vertical piece with two two pins on it. Yep, I've seen that one, and that's by far like the mm-hmm. one that's like on top of my list because both Tyler and I shoot single pins, and we like them, and they're good for around here because like you know you set it at twenty or twenty five, and you kind of know you're pretty much good for <laughs> yeah. around here. But like you know, going out west would be like that's on top of my list is to get something like that because. I don't know. I went from that single pin and going back to a multi-pin would be really tough at this point. Yeah, absolutely. That's That was my exact argument. I was like, you just want one pin, you're perfect to sit in a tree stand. 
Mm-hmm. The guys that are used to shooting the five pin, the seven pin, they do great out here. But if you like that single pin, you got to have the, the either two or, or I should say the single vertical piece. You got to have either the two or the three pins out here. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Too bad they didn't make those cheaper. <laughs> it, it hurt me a little bit when I bought it. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to buy this boat and I'm going to put exactly what I want on it. And then I'm not going to buy anything else for 10 years. Yeah. Like, like, like Ethan always tells me <laughs> buy once, cry once. Yep. <laughs> but, um, one thing, uh, one thing I wanted to ask me about too, is like your camping setup. So, you know, you said you were down there with a couple other guys. Are you guys using like a wall tent? I'm um, just staying in the regular tents or what's kind of like camp set up down there. Yeah. So it, it's worked out well. First year we went down, it was, there was six, six people at camp. Um, two of us brought down like enclosed trailers. One guy had a nice enclosed trailer with heater and, you know, all this fancy stuff in there, a freezer and this and that. Wow. And yeah. Yeah. Jeez. So living large. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that, to be honest with you. Yeah, exactly. So the first year that my dad and I went down, we had an enclosed trailer. And it didn't have windows and it didn't have a heater. So <laughs> we built these bunk beds that fold down from the wall. You sleep on like a four inch memory foam piece that you buy from Walmart. Which, yep. by the way, after a long day of hiking and glassing up beer, <laughs> you sleep really, really good on. <laughs> and we decided that it was really cold when we were doing that because it gets down to 15, 20 degrees. Yeah. So, um, we had a little bit of a scare the first year, had a little buddy heater going and woke up in the morning and tried to start the buddy heater and it wouldn't start. And I was like, what's going on? And then like three seconds later, I was like, there's no oxygen in here. That's why it's not starting. Wow. So second year we go down, we got the furnace. So we don't have to screw around with the buddy heater. It's a vented furnace. So we don't have to worry about not having any oxygen. Um, and yeah, that went a lot better. And then kind of between our two trailers, we have a big wall tent that we throw a table in. Um, we got a grill there. And so we all, everybody kind of cooks two or three nights on the trip. And we all sit down at the end of the day and have a pretty good sized dinner. So the, you wall, don't too the wall tent's the kind day. of like your gathering area, I guess. Yeah, it's a community area. Yep. Oh, that sounds like a good time. That that would be scary waking up and God, why wouldn't this start? <laughs> you guys didn't have a uh carbon monoxide uh oh, no. deal or no, we whatever were, it's called. We thought we were good. We didn't even <laughs> think about it. Up in the morning and go, Oh, that was that was dumb. We, <laughs> yep. we very easily could not have woken up. Like, we all we all have those moments, you know. So um one thing when I think about the desert and maybe it's just like the Midwestern me is like did you guys ever run into any snakes or scorpions down there or anything like that? Gosh, I didn't even think about that. Um, so that time of year, obviously, like I said, it, it gets down most nights. It's in that 15, 20, 25 degrees. So we don't see too many snakes. Actually, I don't think we've seen any snakes. Oh, that's um, good. Peak my interest yes, again. That's, <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a huge concern. Um, we've seen, seen mountain lions. We've seen, you know, me and Jacob Wilson down there the second year. Uh, 
go up on the mountain, making really good stock on this deer. And I'm hiking through this terrain and he's kind of coming in from the other side. And I'm like, this is, this is definitely where a mountain lion would live. And there's like freaking bones and everything everywhere. And I'm <laughs> kind of getting a little uneasy. Yeah. We come back, we come back the next day driving by and there's a guy parked right there glassing. They're like, Hey, well, you know, what are you, what are you looking for? He's like, Oh, there's a mountain lion up here this morning. And I was like, <laughs> shit, dude, I was right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's kind of the, the one thing that can kind of make you a little uneasy at, at times. Um, and then they have these things down there called Cuda Monday. You guys ever heard of those? Yeah, I have heard of those. Mm, sounds yeah. familiar. So they're like a, a rodent, like raccoon monkey thing. So they're, uh, they're pretty aggressive, I guess. One of the ranchers down there, um, She's got a bunch of hounds that she goes and hunts mountain lions with. And she says that those Kuda Monday kill way more dogs every year than the mountain lions. That's so, crazy. One, and it was, I was watching a group of like 25, 30 deer. Guys were going in, moving in, making a stock. And all of a sudden, every single deer turns its head and looks in one direction. I was like, what's going on? The guys aren't even close, you know? And there's this freaking monkey looking thing running down the mountain with its tail, ring tail straight up in the air. And yeah, just weird looking things. You wouldn't think that they would live down there. Wow. But so you've seen them quite a bit down there or are they kind of rare? Or? I've just seen the one. Just one. And yeah. You're allowed. At, I don't know the exact regulations on it, but you're allowed at least as a resident to shoot one a year. Okay. Oh, we've never gotten one, but you you know they're there. So yeah, that's kind of weird. It's like all those things that aren't even in Iowa. Something (laughs) something you don't even think about. You know that just that that stuff just goes over my head that that would even be out there. You know. Yeah. The other thing that's out there is immigrants that are coming across the border. So I didn't even think about that. We're, we're quite a ways from the border, but you know, all the way across the desert, there's little piles of like ashes where, you know, people are coming across, they make a fire for the night and they keep moving and there's shoes and blankets and backpacks and stuff that's like stowed under a tree, all that kind of thing. Um, I mean, you get everything from single people running through there with backpacks full of who knows what. Yep. To families that are trying to make their way over, you know. Yep. Um, and we, we, second year we were down there, we ran into Border Patrol a lot. They told us they picked up like 11 or 12 of them right where we were making a stock the really? day before. And the morning after Border Patrol was there, we went out. Um, it was still pretty dark. And so we're sitting in the machine waiting for it to get light. And I can hear something. And so I kind of pull up my binos and I was like, oh, it must be a deer, you know? And I pull up my binos and there's this guy standing there with a big yellow backpack just looking at me. Wow. And it it makes your stomach turn a little bit yeah, seeing that. Definitely. So, um, Something you're not expecting. I mean, the rancher was like, you see a family, obviously you don't want to interact, but you can if you need to. But you see a guy by themselves, you turn and you walk the other way just leave those guys alone really so it's yeah i mean it is something that you got to keep in mind every time you come up 
another draw. So have you uh, ever heard of or had any interactions where like gear stole or something stole out of your guys' campsite, something like that? No, nothing like that. We, we camp pretty close to um, the private property of the rancher. Okay. So, I mean, there's, they're driving by a couple times a day. So we, we never really had to worry about anything like that, but I suppose it happens. I mean, yeah, definitely. That didn't, yeah. again, that didn't even cross my mind that something like that would be prevalent out there. Yeah. Arizona, yep. man. Weird place, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. It's a different breed down there. Just like deer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so are you, uh, are you building points every year, I suppose, in Arizona then? For uh, elk and other species or? I'm going to start probably this, this year. Well, next year now, I'm pretty sure the deadline's passed, but, uh, I haven't put a lot of focus on it. I don't know if that's just because I've been at school and I'm like, Hey, you know, if I do end up drawing something, I don't have the time, the opportunity to go down there. Yep. Um, so I need to start putting more focus on that for sure, but I, I haven't yet. So you need to draw one of those Arizona strip tags one year. Yeah, you shoot all those huge bucks out of there. Um, I got one other question, and maybe it doesn't really affect you because I know, uh, you know, you're not obviously there in Arizona all the years. But do you guys ever? Do you guys ever run into trail cameras much? Because that's kind of been a heated topic in Arizona since they banned them. Yeah. So we we've never run them. Yeah. We've never ran into anybody. Um. Actually, no. I take that back. With we have a guide friend down there who. Um, has ran them the fir- ran them the first two years we were down there, kind of puts them on water troughs, and then this year he was like, you know, I can have them out there for a little bit, and then January first hits, you go and pull them all. Mm-hmm. So, um, hasn't been a big part of the way that we do things, but I'm sure there's a lot of people that are frustrated about it because, especially the guides, you know, that's a lot of how they do their scouting. Definitely. You know, the guy that we know lives up in, he spends part of his year in New Mexico and part of his year up in a different part of Arizona. So he goes and sets cameras and goes home, does his thing, and then you know, comes down and checks him. But now that's all gone. So, yeah, it's something that's definitely like weird from a Midwestern perspective because, like, when you think tree sand hunting, like it's a synonym, like trail cameras, you know, they go right with it. And, like you have to have one about if you're going to tree stand hunt in a lot of cases. And, you know, some guys run, you know, 20 at one spot and, you know, mm-hmm. they want to see everything and they got the videos and they want the whole life story of the deer. So it's definitely interesting when you hear about them banning them. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's just speculation. It would be interesting to hear like somebody's actual perspective from Arizona about how much it does contribute to some of the pressure and, I don't know. Maybe that does contribute to some of those deer being skittish. If you got human activity going through the places and terrain all the time for guys checking trail cameras. So. Yeah. You think of it, that's, that's where they go to get water. That's how they stay alive. If there's somebody there planting a camera, maybe it does put that pressure on them. I, I don't know. In my mind, I wouldn't think that it would really affect them that much, but maybe it does. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I guess I'd hate to be a trail camera manufacturer. <laughs> They're going to start hurting pretty soon, but I guess I always got these Midwestern states. Oh yeah. <laughs> sure. They'll always yeah. have them here. Yeah. They'll always have them here. I don't think they'll ever get banned in Iowa at least. 
I know. I, I've, I don't foresee it. No. Eh, no. I know I've talked to guys where it's like, oh, if you're going to deer hunt, you got you to gotta have like 20 uh, trail cams. Otherwise, you don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I almost like the, I mean, I'm talking about hunting in Iowa. You know, this could be different. It's probably different out there, but, you know, I kind of like the surprise of it all. You don't know what's coming around the corner. And the way I always thought about Iowa, and like I said, we could be completely wrong, but it's like, you know, you got these little small plotted pieces of woods that may only be a couple acres big. So it kind of does make a little sense to maybe plot some trail cameras. But I mean, like the big open terrains, and I know they're only doing it a lot in like these water troughs, but it's like, you just think these deer could move so much because like there isn't like a whole lot of bedding areas for deer around us. You know, they only have so many wooded spots they're going to go to yeah. and everything. So, yeah. I don't know. I think it'd be really hard to map a deer's behavior, even in Arizona. But, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, for a guide, you know, if like you're booking these, tro- you want to book these trophy hunts and you're like, gar- not guaranteeing, but in some ways you're guaranteeing that people are going to shoot, you know, big mule deer, 170, 180 inch mule deer. Like you got to kind of have some proof to back it up. And what's the easiest way is to put some trail cameras out there. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I was, I was very surprised when they made that call, but obviously they saw something that I didn't. So I don't have too much to say on that topic, but I will say, I, I always thought it would be cool to, you know, if you're on a trip or something and you're in the middle of nowhere, you plot that point on your Onyx and you set a trail camera up and whether, you know, you're many States away or not, and whether this is, you know, people could argue that it's irresponsible or whatever, but It'd be so fun to go back a while later, you know, we're how many states over from Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, but, you know, go back a long period of time later just to see what's on there. Yep. Yeah. I think you'd be pretty surprised just the things that walk by that, that one specific area, you know, even like people, you don't even know what you can see on there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, It would be interesting. Totally. Social experiment. But um how about uh how about you, Luke? You got anything else planned for this spring? Any turkeys, bears, or just kind of wrapping up the school year? Um, well, number one, wrapping up the school year, trying to keep a positive attitude through that. <laughs> uh and I I love to shed hunt. So down where I'm at in the state, the season doesn't until May first. So Yesterday we went to another part of the state to do a little shed hunting and got to the spot that we wanted to go. There was another truck and we were like, I oh, will just go in and see what we can find, you know, and we get in there and the whole thing was just tracked up. There'd been people in there for the last two, three weeks. So we were just kind of one step behind everybody. Didn't really find much. But uh have you had much success in that uh in the past? And with shed hunting, I've had, I've had some, um, nothing crazy. Not like the guys that have to like stockpile sheds so they can go in there and get up <laughs> the next day. Yeah. I'd love to have a day like that, but it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. You see um, TikToks of people and they just got like a pile of elk antlers on their pack, you know? And those are the guys I think that, you know, come February 1st, they're watching out there every weekend, watching where the elk are knowing exactly where they're going to drop soon as one or two of them drop they start going in yeah which again in the part of the state that i'm in you can't you can't even go out and watch them so 
Oh, they don't let you watch them. That's even. what I'm just gonna ask. So, the date you can't pick up a shed till May first, or you can't nope. even be out there. Is it how does that kind of work? Yeah, you can't be out looking for them. Wow, can't pick them up, can't move them, and yeah. If you state that you're out looking before May first, you get in a lot of trouble. Really? Even if you're out there, it's tough, you know, because guys can just be out there hiking. I mean, legitimately yeah. just hiking. And you can make that argument. Oh, I'm just out here hiking. I'm not looking for sheds, even though you got a backpack on and things that would indicate that you're a shed hunter. <laughs> yeah. You can make that argument and I don't know necessarily how that goes. It's it's a pretty interesting topic and there's a lot of guys up up north. You don't have to wait till May first, but there's a bunch of like elk refuges that there's a lot of sheds on and you know it can be middle of March, April first, and guys are in there anyway and they get in trouble. There's guys that fly drones over it looking for them and you can't do that. I mean yeah, I'm sure that's a big no no. It yeah, it's really tough for guys like me and my buddies that I go with who do follow those rules and do wait the specific amount of time before you go in there definitely it's, it's tough yeah it's super tough to see guys that go in there and just pick it all over before you even get a chance yeah so. i mean i don't blame you i'd be a little up, upset about it because i mean it's almost you're cheating the system is what you're yeah. really doing and like yeah. you said for guys like you who are doing it honestly and following the rules you know they don't even give you a chance yep yeah it sucks because like you know 99 percent of people are doing good and there's the one percent that they're making the rule for and the 1% still isn't following the rules. So really didn't accomplish much, but pretty, pretty disheartening. You pick out a spot that you're looking forward to since February and you show up there May 1st at eight o'clock and there's blueprints going in and out. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's one of those things I'm sure it's a great area too. Cause it's like, yeah, it's open to hiking, but it's like who really hiked and like this like really well hunted spot, you know, just kind of a yeah. weird spot. It's a weird thing in my <laughs> yeah, head. At least. I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah. But it's, it's always weird when you hear people like go to like those great efforts for things like sheds or like, you know, like there's a guy who poached a bunch of squirrels in Iowa. And it's like, why would like, why would you have like over your possession limit and squirrels <laughs> or, or bluegills? It's like, what's like, what's going on in your head? I guess it just seems very strange to me at least, but like for a guy to like, be like, I'm going to, go and break the law and I'm going to fly a drone and look for all these sheds and everything. It's like, all right, you do you, man. But yeah, it doesn't make sense almost. No. Yeah. That specific area that I'm talking about, there's a game warden that lives like at the gate and it's like, okay, really? You know, there's a game warden that lives there and you're still going to go fly a drone. Yeah. Almost knowing that you're going to get caught. Like, come on, dude. You got to have some big balls to try something like that, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, it sounds like you had a good time in Arizona. Luke, you got any other final thoughts you want to kind of give on Arizona in general? I mean, I I hit one this year while I was down there. I can throw in that story if oh, you yeah, want. Oh, yeah, yeah, that story, yeah. Oh, wow. We didn't even get to that. It, was, it still hurts me a little bit to think about and talk about, but... Okay. Uh, We'll grieve with you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, it was the second to last point. And it was just my dad and I at camp. Our friends were off in 
uh, Tucson when I was at a wedding and whatnot. Um, so my dad and I took off on the machine, kind of went in the direction where we'd been seeing some deer. And this year was, um, we had, we, we were pretty early on the rut this year. Last year we were kind of in the middle of the rut, but they had a really dry year. So there was tons of broken bucks, just big forkies. But, uh, anyway, this year we, we'd been seeing deer in this area and there's a, a, a little buck that crosses the road like 30 yards in front of us. And obviously it's the second to last morning. I'm going to shoot anything that looks semi-mature. Um, but we kind of screwed ourselves because the year before it had been super dry. So, you know, you're holding your bow while you're driving and it is so dusty. I mean, you get half an inch layer of dust by the end of the trip on everything. So this year we were like, all right, we're going to build a box that we can throw our packs in, throw our bows in and kind of keep everything in a little better condition. So, so yeah, this buck crosses the road in front of us. I immediately stopped, shut off the machine and moved to the back of the machine to get my bow out of the box. So I'm scrambling to do that. And he's just standing there at 40 yards, just watching me. <laughs> like, okay, you know, my adrenaline's really starting to kick in now. And, uh, get my bow ready. And as soon as I knock an arrow, he takes off. He's out to 70. Like, okay, my dad's got the range finder. He spot, he's, he's ranging him for me. Um, I'm getting ready to draw. Just keeps moving away. Keeps moving away. Keeps so frustrated. You know, this box is working really good, keeping the dust off, but run into the situation like this and it's super frustrating. Yep. So he goes up the mountain and he's, I don't know, 150 yards, 160 yards away at this point. And we're like, all right, you know, we'll just keep going, keep looking. And I drive up. I can see that he's moving to the west. So the road goes to the west. I'm like, let's drive up here just a little bit and see if I can make another play on it. So we get up, I don't know, another two, 300 yards on the road and looking up the mountain. And I'm like, okay, I can see this ledge that he's on. He's going to move across here. So I grab my bow, I run up there and I get probably 20 yards from the bottom of that ledge. And I can't see him yet, but he must've heard me because I hear him take off running. So then I take off running after kind of around this corner and he's still just trotting away. He's not like super spooked, but he's not walking either, you know? Yep. Um, and he went down through a little bit of a dip. So I come up the other side of that dip and he's just, there's nowhere to be seen. So I'm sitting there disappointed, pissed off. And I'm just getting ready to turn back, um, back to the machine so we can go down the road a little further. And I see some deer down on the bottom. So I'm like, all right, maybe I can glass one up here, make a play. And as I'm glassing those deer, all I can see is, no butts and hooves, they're behind bushes. I see a rack in my binoculars. I was like, shit, here we go. <laughs> uh, and it was a different buck that was significantly bigger. I mean, a 140, 150 buck, which at this point in the trip, I am more than happy yeah. with, you know. And I'm watching him, watching his movement. He has no idea that I'm there. And He's going to pop out perfect at 70 yards. 
All right, so I set my sight, trying to keep my nerves under control, wait for him to move out, and he disappears. I see him moving uphill. I'm like, sweet, this will work out even better. He'll be at 40 yards when he pops out. So now I'm getting ready to do that. And looking for him, looking for him, don't see him. So I kind of stand up, and he's below me at 30 yards, looking directly at me. Damn. And I'm stood up at this point. So I range him, I set my sight, and all I had was a frontal shot. I don't like frontal shots, but I was like, if this is the opportunity that I'm going to have, I'm going to take it, you know? Um, so I draw back and my arrow falls off of my string oh. at 30 yards with this deer looking right at me. Oh my so gosh. So I let off. I'm like, again, pissed off at this point. Let off, re-knock my arrow, draw again, and he's still standing there. So I let one fly. It smokes him. I mean, it looks like a perfect hit. He turns really hard to his left. And uh, I'm pretty pumped, you know, kind of let my nerves calm down. I call my dad. I'm like, hey, I shot a buck, but it wasn't the same buck. It was a different one and it's bigger and this and that. He's like, all right, you know. So I give it, I don't know, 30 minutes and go down to where he was standing. And my arrow is land like right there, right where I shot. So I was like, shit, dude, it was a pass through. Like we're golden. And what had happened was it, it went in probably halfway up the arrow shaft. And when he turned to his left really hard, it pulled, pulled the arrow out and it was just laying in a bush right there. Man. And so that was a little bit concerning, but was what was even more weird was that there was no broadhead in the arrow. The broadhead was still in him and the arrow had pulled off the broadhead, which like I blew these things in there. They're not supposed to fucking do that. Right. Yeah. You know? Um and but besides that fact, it's an absolute bloodbath. So I'm like, all right, you know, we're we're gonna find this thing. I'm I'm not worried about it. I start texting people, hey, I hit one. Um, I'll keep you updated. And I wait like another hour. And I start following blood, start following blood, turn on my tracker on Onyx. And again, I mean, it is like pouring out of him for the first quarter mile. And I get to the end of that quarter mile. There's pools pulled up on rocks of blood. Like, dude, he's going to be right over here, you know. And 20 yards from those pools, he started going uphill and jumped a fence. And... We tracked him for probably two and a half miles that day. Gee. Hours on our feet, you know, going after him. And there's another guy from, I don't remember where he said he's from, like Louisiana or something that was out there. And he's like, I'll help you. So we're all looking for this thing, you know, and the blood's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And I'm getting worried. And we decided to call it a day. It's dark. Um, Head into town that night to shower. This guy in town is like, uh, sees that we're dressed in camo. He's like, you have any luck today? I was like, yeah, I hit one, this and that. He's like, where are you from? I was like, oh, up in Wyoming. They told him the town I live in. He's like, oh, no shit. I know somebody from there. Anyway, just a side note that it's a crazy small world, you know? Yep. And he's like, you probably never seen anything like that, have you? I was like, no, you shoot a deer in. Wyoming and it goes 400 yards and falls over dead. And 
especially with the amount of blood that there was, I was like, there's no way this thing's going than a half mile, you know? And he's like, yeah, I shot one last year and tracked it for six hours. Couldn't find it. Came back the next day, found it standing there alive. And it had killed a coyote that tried to eat it in the middle of the night. Holy shit. And he had, yeah, he had to shoot it again. And finally it died. He said he cut it open and the whole thing was just blood pudding. Like could not believe. So when I say these things are a different breed, like it's, it's nuts. And anyway, yep. Headed out there the next morning and we'd lost blood the night before, found it right away the next morning. Thank God. And tracked it for another half mile. And he was headed uphill to God knows where. And that was it. So. Damn, that's, that's a tough one to swallow. Pretty crazy story. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was rough. I never experienced anything like that. Um, but so yeah, it, it happens. It's easy to say in hindsight, but I suppose like, did you think you had a good shot and like, do you still think you had a good shot or do you wish you would have maybe did something a little bit different or I know everything's so in the heat of the moment, but yeah, the only thing I can think of is that he was below me at that point. Um, I'm confident in my shot placement because I mean, you know, a frontal shot, you got a pretty small window that you got to hit, but at 30 yards, I got a 70 pound bow. I was pretty confident that I'd be able to blow through anything, even if I was a little bit off. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it went halfway up the arrow shaft before it stopped still makes me feel good about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe I was just too high shooting down at an angle too hard or, I was an inch too far to the right. I mean, yeah, it's hard to say. Like I said, I, I hate taking frontal shots, but at that point, it wears on you. It's your second year out there. It's the second to last morning. There's a big buck standing right in front of you. I somehow managed to get through the process of re-knocking my arrow and drawing again. I was like, okay, we're going we're gonna to just make it happen. And you know, for some guys, it pays off. And other times, it doesn't. So. Yeah, I feel like some of those frontal shots is kind of like a flip of the coin from at least what I've heard. And then, you know, also, uh, you know, everybody can always be like, oh, never take a frontal shot. But like you being there in that moment, like I'm sure every hunter would have took that shot and like mm-hmm. being in your same footstep. So. But um, one thing I had a question, did you ever like, did you not knock your arrow correctly or did you ever like think about that situation? Like why it fell off there or that first time? So I, I knocked my arrow right away when I left the machine going after that first buck. Yep. So, you know, I had probably ran three, 400 yards in that process, whether I knocked my or the, my broadhead on a bush or something and it came undone. And I just obviously in the heat of the moment didn't reposition it. I mean, yeah. it was still, it was still knocked. It just wasn't all the way knocked. Yeah. So, um, well, yeah. Just, it's one of those things. It's like, you're thinking about everything. It's like, well, for sure my arrow is going to be there. And it's like the last thing I'm sure you'd ever check in that situation. So. Yeah. If it's still sitting there. Yeah. Like it's knocked, you're not going to think twice about it. You yeah. know, but damn, that's, that's probably still one that haunts you. I'm sure. Huh? Still probably thinking about that one. Oh yeah. Yeah. I scroll through pictures on my phone and see the piles of blood on that rock. And I just like, God, yeah. Damn it. Yep. I got, uh, and it sucks that, you know, that deer probably went up there 
it, he could have walked more miles from where we lost blood. But yeah. I am very certain that that deer's dead, which makes it hurt a little bit more. Yeah. Right. Probably some mountain lion food up there. But I don't feel like it was a lack of effort on my part. So that makes me feel better about it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you did everything right and everything you could do right. So that probably does ease the grief a little bit there, I suppose. Yeah, and the last morning I was like, or the last evening, I guess, I was like, Dad, you do you do all the hunting from here. Like, I hit one. That was my tag. Be, I'm done. To me, to me, that meant that I had, I had cashed in my tag. So yeah, I was going to ask you that too. So. It's something that Tyler and I kind of struggle with is like, if you guys are all out hunting, I don't know how you guys split up, but is it like you guys, like, let's say you guys glass a deer. Is it that person who glasses it, stalks it? Is it take turns to stalk it? Or like, how do you guys approach that? That's something I never hear like talked about much. So. Yeah. Um, so initially it's, you know, say it's the first morning. Yeah. Whoever glasses it up, that's who's going to go for it. Okay. Um, but at the same time, we, we all take we take turns, but at the same time, we're all moving in on the same deer a lot of the times. So yep. We're coming in from different angles, right? So everybody has a chance at that point. Um, so yes, we take turns, but then again, if it's a deer that's two miles away, you know, me and Jacob are going to go after it, not, not our dads. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, depending on the terrain and that kind of thing that has a little bit to do with it no it does yeah it's one of those things like you know it's like you always like are happy for somebody else but at the same time you're like well i would like to have a deer too you know like (laughs) i mean everybody'd be like oh yeah like of course it's nice that luke got one but i would love to i mean like i'm sitting in the corner and that guy's somebody's probably like i wish that was mine (laughs) you know so it's it's funny because i think that's just human nature in general but totally and i think that says a lot about the group that we go down with that we are going to be happy for anybody that gets it here. Yep. Any kind of success we can have down there, everybody's going to. So. Definitely. And that's how it should be. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when you're talking about 9% success rate, I mean, you know, nine, you know, round up to 10. So one in 10 people are only having success down there. And like for you to be that one person is pretty crazy. So, yep. Yeah, exactly. But you got any other part and thoughts, Luke? Any other good stories you want to share with us? Just real quick, I wanted to talk about the the technique that we use with, you know, having a spotter at the machine, yep. kind of coordinating stocks, right? Okay. So the first two years, we got, say there's four guys there. We sent three hunters out, guys sitting there watching. The first two years, um, you can use radio communication down there. So we had uh, an app that worked through a radio that we could text each other. So we were making noise. And we really tried to get people as close as we possibly could with the radio. Yep. By the end of that second year in my head, I'm like, okay, half of these times we're screwing everything up because we're looking at our phones, trying to figure out where the deer are and this and that, you know? Um, and, And this year I was like, okay, get me close or I'll get you close. And you do everything you can. I'll, I'll do everything I can as a spotter so that you can get eyes on. Them. And once you get eyes on them, I am, I, I'm done. I'm done trying to get you any closer. 
just hunt. You know, there comes a point that you just got to use your instinct and the experience and the situations that you've been in that you've learned from. That that's that's what you got to use. That's what you got to prioritize. Yeah. To to uh, make that successful. So, um, yeah, I guess advice to anybody that uh, hunts like that: get your get your guy in so that he can get eyes on him, and then sit back and watch. Let him him or her let let them do do what they know how to do at that point. You know. Yep. As I say, it's probably frustrating sometimes being that spotter because all I can imagine is you're probably like, well, the deer's like right there. Like, how don't you see him? You know, <laughs> or like, damn, that's not the move that I would have made because I can see from, you know, however far away. And, you know, that's not what I would have done, but. So it, it eliminates any of that argument. And it, uh, I think in my opinion, it sets you up for a better odds of success. Just get in, get your guy in to where they can see him and let him go to work. That's, that's a good tip. Yep, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I always had a question about that because everybody's like, well, we use radios. I was like, how do you use a radio and still be quiet? But it's yeah. pretty cool as an app like that. I guess I never even knew that. So. Yeah. It's super, super helpful to getting people in semi close, you know, because you can leave the machine and stuff looks completely different when you get up there. Yeah. I think Tyler even saw that, you know, like from our glassing knob to like where the elk were at on our hunt. It was like, I was like, whoa. It's like- yeah, I found out the hard way because, you know, looking from, I think it was like mile and a half, two miles away. It was just like, oh, I'll just go sit right there and I'll just shoot this way and it'll be, you know, that's what it'll be. And you get up yeah. there and it's like, it's totally the opposite <laughs> yeah. of what you think from two miles away. Yeah. Yeah, we learned that the hard way. And then, no, it's, Absolutely. All, it's all fun. Just the experience of being out there and being out with some good buddies, some other good hunters and sharing that experience together. I mean, that'll last a lifetime. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I enjoy most about it. Being down there is the people that you're with, those experiences that you share for sure. All right. You got anything else, Luke? Any other part and thoughts? I'm, I'm good to go. I think I appreciate you guys having me on. Anything from you, Ty? Nah, I was just going to say, Luke, you know, Hopefully sometime we can meet up, whatever it is, just bullshitting or maybe hunting. And if you're ever down in this area, hit us up and hopefully we can do a podcast in person. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah, it would be. That'd be a blast. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for everybody for listening. I uh, appreciate you having you on, Luke. Tyler said it's awesome. Take time out of your day to kind of talk about these hunts and kind of show our listeners and us ourselves, you know, because we've never been to Arizona some of these cool places that you've been and experiences you've been able to have. So, Yeah, I love doing it. I love sharing the experiences that I've had and mistakes that I've made so hopefully people can learn from 